Have you ever thought about that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? I did. I actually bought two homes in Albuquerque that I Airbnb'd, and it was just an amazing investment, honestly, because, you know, as you are accruing value in your property, you are also making money on the Airbnbs. It's amazing. So your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila is a must-have. It's an award-winning tequila. It's infused with real juice, with real fruit, which means the flavors are built in. It's real. So you need like two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Hey, um, you know how I'm always trying to keep my house parties exciting? New cocktails? <laughs> do you? Yeah. Okay, well, here's something that's going to flip the script. Okay. All right. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about this, right. Oliver Hudson. Yeah, 21 Seeds is an award-winning tequila that's infused with juice from real fruits. You only need two to three ingredients to make the perfect cocktail. Wait a minute. I think I know what brand you're talking about. You know why? Yeah. Because 21 Seeds is founded by two sisters and their friend. It's female founded. That's right. See? Sounds See like how I know? Something I can get behind. I know. Well, there's a good story behind that for sure. Listen, if you love tequila... You have to try 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds Diageo, New York, New York. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No, no. Sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. <laughs> sibling rivalry. That's good. Oliver, Oliver, this was a great, it's a great episode. It, it I think, speaks to a lot of the things on the show and... And uh, one big major theme in our life, which is Mm -hmm. being, I guess, sort of estranged with our father, even though we do connect uh, here and there. And that how common that is, how unfortunately common it is for someone to be estranged from someone in their family. Uh, An actual listener shared this book with us and then we got in touch with him and asked if he'd come and talk with us about you know family complications we're talking to dr carl pillimer he's actually a family sociologist um he's a professor at cornell university where i went that's my alma mater I just talking to recently who went to Cornell or someone whose kid maybe I don't think we're gonna have anyone in our family go to Cornell no definitely not maybe Ronnie maybe Bing and Bodie they're kind of they're smart kids yeah they're yeah, way smarter yeah. than we were 
Let's I know. be honest. And just let's just make sure they don't hear this podcast. I got an email yesterday because again, like Bodium, you know, he's always on top of things, and I never have to worry about him. And I get an email saying oh. that he has seventeen assignments missing. One seven. Hmm. Like what the fuck? How is what that even happened? possible? I I I confronted him and. And he he just did, you know what's so great about Bodie? I'm talking a little quiet because he's kind of near the next room. But he, he just did, he was like, he just said, you know what? Um, I got, I'm tired and I got lazy. Uh, I was tired and lazy and I just, you know, I put it off and put it off and it, it just built up and it was too many to, to actually go back and do. And I got tired and I got lazy. <laughs> and I was like, you're like. How am I mad at You're that? Like, I'm like, wow. Uh, okay. Okay. Well. Great. Well, uh, uh, thank uh, you that sounds- for <laughs> being so open, and let's just get it done. I, I couldn't even get mad. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. You know. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna top this story. You ready for this? Bing, we feel like is doing all his work, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I get a call. Same thing. So. Bing is missing 51 assignments. <laughs> and I was like, this has to be a mistake. You mean 15 <laughs> assignments? No, 51. And so I go to Bing and I'm like, Bing, we need to we need to talk about this, you know. Um so you're missing and I, I couldn't even like get it, get it out. <laughs> 51 assignments. And he was looking at me like. Uh, like it's it's like in his mind he's like there's no way I'm missing 51 <laughs> assignments yeah. and in my mind I'm going there's no way he's missing 51 assignments and he's like mom th- that has to be like a mistake right and I'm like mm, I don't think so so we go into his thing mm-hmm. and he's missing 51 assignments and then he got them done in, in, in literally three days no joke it was like it was like wait why wouldn't the teacher or the school will be like, hey, you know what? You're missing three assignments. Let's get on this. Why are we waiting till 51? I don't know. This is what I said to them. And they said, look, you know, this is very common. And I said to the teacher, I said, it's common for a child to be missing 51 assignments. I don't know. But that doesn't that doesn't really sound like wow. a yeah. Well, I bowed. I bow down. That 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 definitely Trump's Bodie by a long shot. <laughs> Holy crap. I did I did tell him that if he did it again that that I would estrange him. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an actual word? Like can you say to listen? To estrange. I'm gonna estrange you. I'm gonna estrange you. Sounds <laughs> so that's what I say to Aaron when we're being and <laughs> making love. You wanna, wanna get estranged? You. Do you wanna get estranged yeah. right now? You want- <laughs> I'm feeling, I'm feeling like, uh, <laughs> oh God, let's just hope Dr. Carl is not listening to this intro. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm glad we can laugh about, you know, how traumatic our estrangement was. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's how we deal um, with it. We're crying on the inside. Anyway, so Dr. Getting back. he's a family psychologist. I know Oliver has already said that. And the Hazel E. Reed Professor in the Department of Human Development at Cornell University. And he also di- directs the Cornell Legacy Project. His book is called Fault Lines. 
fractured families and how to mend them. Really interesting conversation. The thing that I learned the most was sort of how much shame comes with a lot of this and how quiet everybody is about it, how nobody really mm-hmm. talks about estrangement. It's always it's always interesting to talk to you know experts, doctors, professionals that pertains to situations in your life. So it's personal, you know, when when we get to have these conversations, especially with Dr. Carl, talking about estrangement, relating it to what we've been through, reading his book, understanding how we can sort of benefit from reading it, get, putting the tools into the toolbox to then try to fix and help some of these relationships, even ours, you know. Um, well, and also how you can mend, you know, there's obviously times and circumstances that shouldn't be. But, you know, when when is the right time to look at it and want to reconcile or come together? Mm-hmm. Is it is it possible? You know, these are all the things that we we discuss. I think this is one of my favorite episodes, clearly because it does relate to us uh, in a huge way. But but also just learning so much about how common it is, really. And and he even said it's so nice that people are becoming more transparent about their situations in their family when Mm -hmm. they aren't in contact with a family member or have had an event that has led them to to not speaking. And um, I know it's interesting, though, because sometimes those things not not necessarily get blown out of proportion, but we stew in them, you know, instead of communicating and maybe realizing that there are ways to reconcile if we can just open up our mouths, communicate and understand some of the differences and maybe get to re- realize why we did why 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 we are estranged what happened to have a dialogue about it and we talk about patterns and we talk there's there's a lot of stuff we touch on in this episode and i have a feeling people are really going to love this one so without further ado this is our estrangement episode with, with dr carl pillimer We are obviously very excited to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And as most people know who listen to our podcast, are both um, ourselves were estranged from our father, or we like to just say abandoned. Okay, was, um, we were abandoned by her. <laughs> yeah. um, and we've uh, seemed to kind of, uh, it's, it's affected both of us differently. And, you know, something that's always carried throughout our lives and everything that we do. And so when we heard about your book and we heard about you, we were like, we have to interview Carl. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm mm-hmm. so excited. Well, it's such a pleasure. And you're right. It's an incredible topic that affects way more people than we think about. And it's a problem hiding in plain sight that people just don't want to discuss. Well, why don't you give the statistics, you know, because they were pretty unreal, actually. That's a great way to start. And let me you know, tell you that when I started this project five years ago, I was aware that it was an issue from reading about folks like you who are well known and problems in their own family and from talking to friends. But really, there'd been almost no research on it. And the question was, is this just, uh, you know, one of those silent epidemics that everybody talks about? Or is it really a serious problem affecting a lot of people? And so one thing I did, you know, like when in doubt, do a survey. So I did a true random sample survey of the United States asking people in no uncertain terms, 
is there a close relative from whom you're estranged? That is, you have no contact with them whatsoever. And to my absolutely stunned surprise, only 27% of the US population, so that would translate to 67 million folks, uh, said that in fact they did have such an estrangement in their own life. And in almost every case, because I asked follow-ups, these were trivial. It wasn't just, oh, I lost contact with him or her. These were, you know, upsetting, you know, issues um, for them. So often the numbers don't speak for themselves, you know, but this time they really do. This is a serious issue for a lot of people, as you yourselves know. Yeah, there's something you said in the beginning of your book. You talked about how you yourself having had experiences with this, that you don't actively discuss them because what you've learned is that there's so many people involved in every story and that it's not yours necessarily your story to tell. And I thought that was really interesting. I think a lot of, especially people in my position or Oliver's position, we don't engage in the conversation because it is just one side and you don't really want to ignite any negativity or, you know, and you, and, and there are feelings of shame that come with it. And also like, you know, or self-worth that come with being like, well, who really cares about this part of my life and the, and, and how traumatic it is. What I've learned is that there's, it's almost wild how many people that it does affect and nobody feels comfortable talking about it. And I wonder what moved you to actually spend the time focusing on, on it. You know, the idea, sometimes ideas, I'm sure it's true with creative work, they feel like they come out of the blue. But actually, I realized, I thought that at first, but there was a long history. Uh, I've been interested in my whole research life in families after children become adults. So, you know, um, we have our kids home for 18 years, but we're going to have least, at least twice as much shared lifetime with them after they're out of the house. So I was really interested in the nature and dynamics of how families operate after everybody's an adult. I drift a little bit towards the dark side of families, I must admit. So I've studied things like the effects of parental favoritism. Uh, I've even looked at domestic violence or exploitation in these later life families. So I was primed for it. But I began a project maybe 10 years ago or 12, interviewing the oldest people in America, so 80, 90, or 100, about their lives. And one key question we asked is, what do you regret? So I thought when I asked very old people what you regret, or you know, how do you get to the end of life with no regrets? I'll tell you one thing they said, by the way. They told me that if you get to 90 or 100 and have no regrets, you haven't had a very interesting life. Mm-hmm. But still, <laughs> um, I, um, they were in, and I expected big ticket items. I expected affairs. I expected kind of shady business deals. I was stunned by for how many very old people, an unresolved estrangement was the most painful thing they could describe. Uh, and it really hit me with one older woman in Texas who broke down into tears, began to pound her fists on the arms of her chair and say, this hurts like crazy and I can't do anything about it. So I started to look at the research literature and I was stunned that there was almost nothing. Even the handbook of family therapy, this huge volume, doesn't have an entry mm-hmm. for you know estrangement. So I was sitting thinking about it and basically a mental list came. One, people like yourselves who are very well known experience it and we read about it. I've seen it a lot and there's no research on it. 
and not even a counseling literature. What's wrong with this picture? So I embarked on what for me was really the most sort of exciting journey. It took me into some dark uh, places, but also some very uplifting uh, and positive ones too. It's it feels it feels broad. You know what I mean? Estrangement just feels very broad, and you know, yes, the research gives you statistics, but you know, as you sort of talk about in your book, it's not quite there yet to really form an actual, right. you know. It's almost like it's almost like the research starts from people who have like marital issues, like how to, how to have a fruitful relationship. The research is more about how you grew up or the estrangement that you had is affecting your relationship now right, but versus... Then, then I guess the idea, though, is, is to recognize it and you know, and fix it in a way or, you know, get into your own psychology and, and discover how that estrangement has affected your life and where it has come from. Well, you know? there's two parts of it, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Right. There's there's the psychology behind being estranged or being a victim of someone or there's the or there's the person act actively like removing themselves. Mm hmm. And well, there's the circumstances for estrangement, too, are so broad. And it's like you talk about everyone has their story and they stick to their narrative. And that narrative becomes so embedded that you're not going to knock them off of it. Right. Exactly. You know? I mean, the one thing because because what I found is that when people want an apology from somebody, you know, they say, well, I'll reconcile if you apologize. Well, it turns out that they don't want an apology for one thing that person did. They want an apology for their entire childhood mm -hmm. or for the kind of person that the other person is. Mm -hmm. um, and what I you know, learned also, you're so right, uh, Albert, that you know, people get, we all get invested in our own narratives. Uh, um, so my so um, a person's narrative that what he was doing to his brother was ordinary teasing and the brother's narrative that it was sibling abuse. After 30 years, it's never going to, these views are not going to align. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the key things that people who successfully reconcile, because that was one thing I did that was different. I interviewed a lot of people, not just who were estranged, but who'd gotten back together the first time anyone had done this after 10, 20, or 30 years. This notion of letting go of the past and building a new future together, as incredibly hard as that was, um, you know, is really key. Because um, what someone said, I mean, but when people would say, I realized that he or she wasn't going to give up his or her narrative of what went on any more than I was willing to. So it's that kind of complex, uh, you know, interior work that you have to do. I think you're right. Yeah. And then, and then specifically when you are dealing with the person you are estranged with, if you decide to try to reconcile, I think you, it feels like you have to be open to their narrative and trying to go deeper and understanding where they came from. I mean, specifically to me, and I won't get into all the details, but I have had, you know, a, a reconciliation of sorts with my father. Um, but, you know, now getting into your book and patterns, right? Realizing that it wasn't necessarily his fault when you go back into his family, into his world and realize what his dad did to him. And now I was just part of right. that chain you know, there a compassion happens. You know, I, I understand you more, which allows me to soften a bit in well, my in my position. And then I, I I wanted to talk about this too, but then your expectations change the more you know. And one of the things that you uh, 
tap on in the book is about expectations, how we kind of form our own expectations and how they can, um, you know, I, I, I wonder, I sometimes feel like we all form personal expectations that if we hold on to them too tightly, they'll just never be met. I wonder when you're researching all of these different people, especially people who have reconciled, do you think maybe they let all the expectation go? You you touch on a huge, two huge points. And, you know, often social sciences, science is super complicated, but there were a couple of straightforward things that really emerged from this. One is, I think, if you really want to reconcile, and Oliver, maybe you did this, is I found that people who reconciled asked themselves the question, first of all, what's the least I can accept? So let's imagine that you're a grandparent who's estranged from your daughter and you want to see your grandchildren. And so you'd say, okay, if my daughter says, I can come see the grandchildren, but my second husband can't, or you know, I can come on weekends or I can visit them and can't stay at their house. Uh, I may have to put up with X or Y. So often people did kind of a cost benefit analysis and they decided what the least they could accept in the new relationship was. And second, you're right. I mean, you know, I don't know all the details of your family situation, but I'm sure you, like a lot of adult children, have, oh, my dad, even my parents are divorced, ought to have my back, ought to be there for me. A lot of people realize just what you said, the person didn't have the capacity to do it. Um, and they drop the expectation, you know, that cliche that expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is true. I think also, I'm not quite sure what your ages are, but, but when you, when if, like, if you're thinking about a person in their 30s and 40s and a parent in their 60s and 70s, it's not like the other person's going to change. Like uh, these expectations that I'll get back into this if the other person becomes X, Y, or Z. So I think you hit the nail right on the head is you, you have to look in advance what can I accept about this and is a restored, albeit imperfect relationship worth it? You know, the thing is, is we started right with the reconciliation, but I want to start from I know, the but, beginning uh, of like the feelings. We can go back. It's okay. like a, it's like a Tarantino movie, you know, I'm a nonlinear guy. It's funny because you're more linear than I, I am just in general. I just don't want this interview to turn into like <laughs> Oliver's therapy session. It's not. Every pe- time we do things like people this, are Oliver's interested. like, he talks about people, Hoffman. He talks I about, didn't say the word Hoffman. Well, you implied. I went to the Hoffman Institute. <laughs> <laughs> Great <laughs> place. <laughs> um, we, we, we won't get into everything, although it's what the people want to hear, Kate. Um, <laughs> No, so just it's interesting that you say that because no one's changing. He's not changing, but there's been an acceptance in a a sense. Our relationship isn't much better than it was before, but there's an ease to it now. There's some texting here and there, but I'm okay with that. You know, it's something for me. Yeah. You know, I think, and I'm curious about the contrast too, because that's what I found is that very often – when people said, okay, why did you reconcile? So you've been estranged. Almost 100% said, really, the other person I wasn't concerned about. He or she can go jump in the lake. I did this for me. So one of my favorite quotes from the study um, is a guy who was estranged from his brother for 25 years. Called him. They had sort of a semi-reconciliation. He said, I woke up the next morning realizing it's the first time in 25 years this hasn't been in the back of my mind that I don't talk to my brother. 
So some people find it, um, you know, like a weight off their shoulders kind of. It helps them move ahead with their own personal development. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, if a relationship is dangerous or abusive or damaging, people have to make their own choice. Well, reconciliation is almost selfish in a sense, yeah. right? Because it's for you, it's it's for personal benefit in a way. It's, it's what you said, oh, if once I reconcile and come to terms, I feel better. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting, if I can digress briefly, what is interesting is that, uh, you know, in a much smaller scale way, you know, like, so it used to be that folks who are well-known like you, these family issues would come out in the tabloids or whatever, but everybody else would be more private. Now with the advent of social media, this, you know, if somebody is having a difficult relationship with his or her parent, you know, all 1,000 of their Facebook fans know. Yeah, it's open. And the other person has, I think, that same feeling of inability to defend himself against it. Yeah. So, you know, it's both for you, it was on this enormous scale, but even for, you know, kind of more regular folks, they're, they're seeing these things made public in a way that really affects the whole dynamic. You know, Oliver would like do something public, like he did this post one time. Well, this is what I wanted to talk about. Where he was like, about. "Happy Abandonment Day," and right. like my dad wanted to like, Katie, she should just dis. I was like, "Why? I, well, I don't know. What did I do?" No, I'm glad you brought that up because I was scared <laughs> to because Kate doesn't want to get. Yeah, I did read about but, but, that, but, which was so interesting because very often in these estrangement, there's an event like that. This thing happens that. Yes, but here's what's what's so interesting. The reconciliation, at least personally, came from this crazy Instagram post where I said, happy abandonment day. It was a a picture of my- It was Father's Day. It was Father's Day. (laughs) And it was a picture of myself, Kate, and my dad in nicer times. And I wrote, happy abandonment day. That's my sort of dark sense of humor. (laughs) The the whole dad issue has been dormant. It makes the point and it's all fine. I've got to hand it to you. But the whole dad thing had been dormant for years and years and years. It just wasn't even a, a concept in our lives. And then boom, it ignited it. He's back out in the press he's disowning us saying take a Hudson name they need to lose their Hudson name and that prompted me to say all right let's go I got into contact with him three-hour conversation and then boom it, wow. it, it that that's where this came out of at least my reconciliation with my father came out of that that moment of it, you know but what's so interesting is that I have my relationship is so different. Yeah, but you know that that's so classic is from from other research we've done, you know, two people can grow up in the same family, share half their genes and have completely different relationships with the parents. You know, each person creates their own micro environment. You know, one thing I found in doing these interviews is so I would I would start these interviews with people who were estranged, you know, because several hundred people and they and there were some who would begin by saying no, you know, he's just an awful person. This is great. I felt free and liberated. And by the time the interview was halfway through, they were crying, you know, because there are these basic fundamental biological processes of attachment, even if it's only until 18 months, you know, you get attached to people in irrational ways. So very often I would have, it seems to be more daughters of estranged fathers would say, I want him in my life and I don't know why, you know. And the partial answer to why is that you have early processes of bonding in a family that you just can't completely forget about. And that desire is still there, or at least that ambivalence, like 
you know, kind of should I stay or should I go? You know, is it worth making an overture? Um, and, you know, I think that is really the question is, oh, the other thing I would add, one thing I would encourage somebody from these interviews, you know, to ask themselves is what's in it for me. So here's one thing that people did find and what family therapists will also tell you that the difference between estrangement and just a negative relationship is that things freeze. So I've always thought of it like that scene in Sleeping Beauty that I was obsessed with as a kid, you know, or like when she, when she pricks her finger on the needle, everything freezes, like the dancers are midway and half step, and it freezes that way for a hundred years. So all this stuff goes on and you have no access to it. You have no access to information, how the mm. person might change, how yeah. dynamics may have switched. And you can't, if you're in therapy or let's say, there isn't the live material to engage with. Um, and so what a lot of people said is, you know, the difference with just a little contact was the person is then back and you can, uh, like, it can become kind of an engine for personal growth. Right. You know, but once again, barring it being too damaging or painful, so it really screws you up. But if you're protected against that, having the person there so you can assess what's, what's going on is, uh, there were a lot of people who found that very helpful. What's interesting is, I mean, maybe half of my girlfriends have complicated relationships with their fathers. I was thinking about that the other day. One of my best girlfriends also estranged from her father, um, but she never knew him. And then when she got older, she went and looked for him. And when she went to look for him, she found out that he was had died. And oh. I, I thought oh. to myself, I'm like, I almost like think that might be better <laughs> than having this like... <laughs> This roller coaster of sort of, you know, they're there, you know, that they ha like have other families and that they, you know, you, if you just don't know, then you just don't know, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's like an empty space versus like a, a, a fucked up complicated space. Exactly. You know, I, I use the term in the book, someone else developed ambiguous loss. Way better than uh, fucked know, up space. <laughs> that, you know, because a person is psychologically present but physically absent, you know? Right. And so, you know, I had a number of people who said that, that even though they wouldn't want this to happen, it would have been easier if the person had died because they would have mm. known what to do, you know? Right. But, but as one person said, like, this is no funeral, no closure. Uh, you know, it just goes sort of on and on. I do wonder, and nobody studied this, you know, in terms of parent-child relations, what the dynamics or the interaction of um, a celebrity with those relationships are. I mean, uh, most people's kids' lives aren't played out in public. Or, and, and, and the parents might not know how to adjust to this and, and in some cases may take advantage of it. You know, it, just talking to you, I was thinking, I wonder how these dynamics, you know, really might be different. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, because you read like in the now, now in your case, it's different. But, you know, the father's a factory worker, the, the mother's a school teacher and the kid becomes, you know, this sort of world famous celebrity. It, it's got to have an impact on how parents and children relate to one another. Um, if that's too far afield. You know, no, you know, no, no, I not, think not all <laughs> great. It's a great question. I think I think it's an interesting question, too. I mean, I, I, I... It, it's an interesting one because. You may be surprised, I think, that it's not that different, or maybe I'm only saying that because it's my experience. Um, I, I do think that as far as expectation goes, 
you know, the cliche is you just want what your parents had, but maybe a little bit more, you know, um, Kate achieved that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying there's an ex and, and, and again, it, it, we, we came from the same stock, but there's expectations that you put on yourself. And sometimes that expectation will, I, will catapult you. And sometimes it suppresses you. I don't think that's what he's, what he's asking is about. Well, I didn't get to well, that's my part of conclusion. It Definitely. So that relationship, I'm saying that parent, that parent daughter or son relationship, you know, when you're dealing with celebrity, it can, it can, I don't know what I'm saying. You don't I, know what you're saying. I'm trying to figure well, out you, what you are. Well, you saying. fucked me up. You interrupted me. <laughs> well, I was trying to say. I think what he's saying <sighs> is is these sort of remember all the people who were saying about interrupting in public. Yeah, we're keeping yeah. this in so everyone can see. It's I had such a good train of thought in public. I'm happy to keep it in because oh, you'll see God. that you're the one. That uh, you know what? I'm going to estrange myself from you. I'm going to estrange myself from you right now. It'll last like five seconds and then you'll be like crying. Like, I love you. Uh. I love you so much. <laughs> um, I feel like, I feel like, you know, my, our parents for uh, just our experience is probably really different than I think a lot of people, whether it be in highly kind of affluent house households or celebrity households. Um, they really protected us from seeing anything. Yeah, but overall, I mean, I I, I did not like the celebrity aspect of it. I, I hated when people would come to the table and ask for their autograph. Aww. It made me angry. You know, I was like, was I was so like, get the angry. fuck away. You know, that that yeah, was my exactly. feeling. Leave us alone. <laughs> you know, or when you walk through the airport and at the time people would jump out and start photographing you. I, I hated it. Now he's like, I did not for like it. it. Now he just dies <laughs> for well, it. Kate, was just <laughs> Kate, Kate was posing most of the Like <laughs> when, when that happened, you know, she was like, oh, my God, they're here. <sighs> yeah, you should see some of my airport pictures when I'm four. I, I just I hated it. I mean, so, you know. Yeah, but you know, I think you guys are saying something that, that makes me think, you know, that this is one phenomenon that is kind of an equal opportunity phenomenon. Like we also in the surveys that we did, we, for example, looked at we looked at differences in how many people reported estrangements by race or gender by kind of socioeconomic status, and there just really aren't any differences. It's like an equal opportunity problem that, you know, as we've discussed, has kind of as many origin, you know, it's like the snowflakes are never the same. I mean, each one, even though there's a lot in common, each one is its own sort of individual pathway. And, uh, you know, right, it gets played out on different platforms, but it really, the basic dynamics are pretty similar, I think. Yeah, I was kind of saying that in an interview the other day and someone asked me about it because I had mentioned that I, I wanted to reach out to my celebrities and I mean my celebrities that We're I wanted to reach out <laughs> to my that. siblings. Yeah. But I was saying that celebrities, it's no different the experience or what how it manifests or feels like than someone who's not a celebrity. Yeah. The idea that you know, estrangement is estrangement. I mean, abandonment is abandonment. Neglect is neglect. No matter where, it doesn't discriminate. It comes, it, it, it exists, it happens, and it manifests itself differently in different people. You're right, too. I hadn't thought, right, it, it's a problem, too, that money can't sort of buy your way out of it. Oliver. Kate. This is my 
this is my one of my favorite ads that we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I believe me, I know. Because I've lived with you for I use years. each and every now, <laughs> each and every day. I actually use it multiple times a day when I'm feeling like I need a little extra zhuzh under the mm-hmm. pit skis. I have an each and every natural deodorant in my glove box right now as we speak. And you car. know what? I really would kind of scream to the masses, please switch to natural deodorant for your health. So it's really important that we wear natural deodorant. I know that it's hard to find a good one. And that's yes, always been that's what I was anybody. Say. It's, it's been around for a minute, right? You put rocks under your arms where there's like rocks of natural deodorant. It never, ever worked. This actually works. You don't stank. It's a great, (laughs) it's a really good formulation. Um, and they have a brand new scent, which is beautiful. I just, I just got it. It's called white chamomile and bergamot. It's beautiful. Um, but they have a lot of different scents. There's lavender and lemon, cannabis and green tea, cedar and vanilla. Uh, it's a vegan, it's cruelty free. And I don't know. I just, it makes me feel good about using it. That's the kinds of products I like to lean into, if you know what I mean. It's eco-conscious. It's it's carbon negative. All the packaging they use is is all eco-friendly. Um, it's actually sugarcane packaging. Mm-hmm. But don't put it in your coffee. <laughs> um, we know you're going to love each and every as much as we do. <laughs> such a dork. So order today. Take our advice, order their sets so you can try multiple scents. We've got a great offer for our listeners. For a limited time only, get 30% off your first purchase. So go to eachandevery.com slash sibling and use promo code sibling. That's 30% off with promo code sibling at eachandevery.com slash sibling. Oliver, do you want to know that people are soon going to find out about how often I use the beauty blender. Do you want to know why? Mm, I want to know. Because I'm about to go live on TikTok. Oh, you are? Yep. I'm going to venture into the TikTok world. And one of the ones that I've been doing, you know, I've been kind of like seeing how it works and vibing it out. And one of the things I've been doing with my makeup artist is, you know, when she's doing my face... Yeah. I'm just like doing weird posts trying to figure out TikTok. And she's always using the beauty blender. And I have to say, it's a, it's a makeup sponge. Mm. And it's the number one cosmetic tool in America. Every makeup artist has this. Every influent, beauty influencer in the world. This is, the beauty blender is, as far as I'm concerned, a must-have tool for anyone who loves to put on makeup. And that mm. means you too, Oliver Hudson, because we know you ain't shy putting on a little contour and some concealer. Let's be honest. I'm going to, I contour the shit out of myself. <laughs> but you know what I love? They have a collection. They have a collection of original pink Zodiac blenders in yes. all 12 signs. Yes. So I'm a Virgo. I, I'm an Aries. Yeah. Whoop. And so my blender is Virgo based, which means it's very organized. <laughs> anyway, you know what? They just launched this bio pure makeup sponge. It's sustainable. It's made out of 60% plant based of renewable sugar cane. Sugar cane is in right now. This is what 
everyone is using. And they sent me this sponge and it's beautiful. And it really, there's no difference. And I just think that the more we buy this BioPure makeup sponge, the more they're going to make it. It's just mm -hmm. like the original. It's designed to be used wet and uh, it creates less waste of your product. And it's made in the USA. Free, free of gluten, latex, parabens, sulfates. And fluff lights. <laughs> Beauty Blender is offering 20% off of your first order on beautyblender.com with code sibling. That's 20% off with code sibling. Exclusions apply. I really think this is interesting. The shame part, I, I really do want to hit on the shame part because mm -hmm. you're saying something about social media and I, it's something that I love about what's happening now. I think so many people come out and talk about whether it be mental illness or exactly. alcoholism, drug abuse, things that- Eating they, disorders. Whatever. Eating disorder, things that they we've, we've hid behind. The shame of estrangement, like- I'm curious as to what your findings are on that. I know what my personal relationship to it is, but but on a whole, do what what kind of shame do people? It's so in, you know, I've noticed it in myself. So what people would say, actually, one of the quotes in the book is is a woman said, you know, you mention this to people at dinner and they treat it like you're talking about your hemorrhoids. You know, it's just not something somebody's going to ask any more questions about. The uh, sense of the other person assuming that there's got to be something wrong with you. And that is particularly true of parents, but also it's almost like an involuntary, like Mad Magazine, like what they're really thinking bubble over your head. You know, like when the person says, I just don't see my son anymore. You know, he decided that he doesn't want to have anything more to do with us. Most people have an ingrained assumption that the person themselves you know, did something wrong. So I think that's part of the shame. Uh, there's also another really interesting kind of popular social science fact. It's true that parents care more. Um, so we know from, and you probably know this from your own kids, you've invested all this time and energy and effort. Um, and if God forbid any of our kids were to say, I don't want to see you anymore. You know, you feel like you've lost all of that, um, 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 you know, that you've invested. So the one thing I say to parents, by the way, is be careful about how you treat your kids in the sense that it's easier for them to get out of the relationship than it is for you. Um, so that's part of it. But so, but so I think that's part of the shame. And we know that as people get older, their social networks start to shrink and they become more reliant on family members for their day-to-day well-being. And so they start to feel the estrangement acutely. I think what you folks are doing is really bringing this out into the uh, open uh, and having people talk about it as just something that happens to a lot of people is very liberating for others. I've gotten that response you know, to the book. Many of my interviewees said it was the first time they talked to anybody about it. So I don't know, you're right. I, I guess though the question why people do experience it as so stigmatizing is an interesting one. You said something that made me think like, okay, well, if I'm a parent and my child says, I'm done with you, I never want to see you again, my instinct wouldn't be to defend my position. My instinct would be to immediately want to connect 
right? And I think that that's where I would judge. <laughs> that's why I could I could see where the stigma comes from because immediately if someone said, "Yeah, my son won't see me," I'd be I'm immediately like, "What did you do?" What does that have to do with shame? That you would feel like shame? I get the shame. You're ashamed because you could have done something. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> shame, it feels like shame can stop reconciliation, meaning you feel so much shame that you are not even able to reconcile. But I think you raise a really good point that we don't, you know, the, that we think of someone else's shame as a barrier. But I think you're right that people feel sort of guilty. Um, um, you know, and ashamed, and it and it sort of blocks them. Kate, in response to what you said too, I wanted to say that, you know, my guess is that you're feeling the way you do if that happens with one of your kids, means it's likely that you won't become estranged for them. A phenomenon I discovered in this research, though, is some parents, when their child, you know, begins this process of rejecting them, develop what I call defensive ignorance. So. They become so defensive that they can't take in any new information about the relationship. And that's something that we know from social psychology that people do in response to rejection because it so affects our internal image of ourselves that we protect it. You know, we kind of cluster around it by being defensive. So one of the most interesting things that I discovered in doing these interviews is often parents in particular would say right away, we'd sit down and we'd talk, they'd say, I have no idea why this happened. I just can't understand. And then you'd hear them describe a litany of conflicts and the kids written them a dozen letters to explain it. And then they'll come around and say, but I have no idea why this happened. So sometimes people feel ashamed enough that they completely revert to the other side, become extremely defensive, You'll see this in social network in, in, in social media groups where you know the kids have abandoned them and they've deserted them. And adult children do the same thing, that they become very defensive and it blocks any reasonable thinking. One thing I discovered, and some family therapists say, is that parents think that their kids are angry, hostile, or narcissistic. For a lot of adult children, their estrangements are motivated by anxiety. They're anxious. They're afraid that if they get back together with mom or dad, they're going to be pulled into their old way of behaving. They're going to be sucked into a family role that makes them like unbearably anxious. Or they're going to be criticized or belittled or their lifestyle choices are. So even more than anger, there's this undercurrent of anxiety that keeps people estranged. Mm. Yeah, mm. the anxiety is real. That's and let me. I have a question. Does do you think is 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 death the main catalyst for getting back together for reconciliation? Meaning morbidity. It's uh, like I, we're all gonna die, and what's that yeah. gonna be like when when yeah. dad dies? A, a, a big motivation for why you know, like they're kind of steps. And when people start to think about reconciling this kind of a contemplation stage where it just occurs to them and then they begin to make real plans. A big part of that contemplation stage is what, you know, in the book I call anticipated regret, uh, that people do start to think, as one of my respondents said, I didn't want to be that person who left, you know, who left this world with somebody holding a grudge against me or me holding a grudge against them. 
So I think I don't have data on this, but I've gotten tons of anecdotal evidence that people are reconnecting during the pandemic more than they were, that uh, there's this sense that now may be too late. So I think I agree, Olive. I think it's a very strong motivation for um, a lot of people that they don't, you know, that it's going to, you know, deathbed reconciliations might not occur. And, you know, as they perceive a limited time horizon, it's definitely a big part of, of why people choose to reconcile. What is the number one estrangement that you saw in your research? Like, was it parent-child or was it sibling-sibling, you know? Interestingly, parent-child and sibling were about equal. So that, it's like, so there around 9% of the population is estranged from a sibling and around 10 is estranged from a parent. And then there are people for whom, like if they've grown up with cousins and then the parents have a fight and they can't see them anymore, for whom that is really painful. So I did include um, other relatives. Now, there's good news there. I mean, um, 90% of parents and children aren't estranged, but still 10% of people at this very moment, you know, kind of lying awake at night and looking up at the ceiling and thinking about it is a pretty big uh, number. I have a lot of 10% in my life. I'm left-handed. I'm, I'm, what does that mean? I'm estranged from my mom. You're just strange. Oh. <laughs> um, now, what about both? Do you find that the people who are estranged from a parent are also estranged from a sibling? You know, it has really interesting dynamics. In some, there's a big issue when siblings have dramatically different views. And as you pointed out, we think of siblings as growing up in the same family, and really they don't. I mean, if you're three or four years apart, you've had a very different family environment. So um, I know a family, for example, there was a family in the study. Dad was a raging alcoholic for the first five or six years and then got sober. So the two kids had very different experiences. It does cause – so there's collateral damage here, too, and one of, you know, so when estrangements occur, I talk about it has these ripple effects. And sometimes siblings don't want the other sibling, you know, to reconcile. If they're, if three of them are really pissed at dad or mom, it can estrange them from the sibling if that person decides to get back together. You know, it's a cliche, but that's why we call family systems, right? I mean, each, each, you know, pair in the family affects the other ones. But yeah, I think there is a relationship there for it's sure. It's guilt estrangement too. I mean, what if we're in a situation where like, I can't believe that you're having a conversation or that you are even connecting with this person. How dare you? You know, which you do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But that must happen, right? I mean, where it's sort of similar it to what you're saying. Yeah, I know it, it, it causes, we also, we actually included um, in the study, uh, between 40 and 50 college students, because a lot of what's been written about estrangement has been, you know, people in your folks' age range. And they feel incredibly caught in the middle. Like, they really are part of collateral damage. I mean, you know, students who would say, I mean, I go home for the holiday, and the first thing is mom tells me what her mother did that last week or what her siblings did or so that it puts incredible pressure on people who are either trying to be peacemakers or, or like you said, you know, they make the connection and everybody else gets mad about it. So, yeah, it causes a lot of complications. 
What about st- the study of it affecting, like, is it genetic? Like, is estrangement something that carries, and could it be genetic? It's a really interesting question, and it's one that we clearly don't have any data. There obviously are genetic predispositions to different kinds of relationships. So, you know, there's some people who are, by nature, more irritable or more difficult or less conscientious, um, et cetera. But, you know, it's so hard to untangle that from a family history of this cultural pattern where a family has just a family history of cutting one another off and people learn it. So uh, that would be a great study for the future. Well, that's learned. It feels learned. You know, it feels more learned 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 than than actually. There are schools of family therapy that the first thing they would do with you is do kind of a genogram. And I describe in the book how I did that. And it made me realize the impact in my grandparents' generation. They all fought. My mom then, my dad died when I was an infant. And my mom had four kids, you know, and, and was struggling. And we had these cousins and folks three or four hours away who would have been really like kind of real family to us. But because people 90 years ago, you know, argued over a house after the patriarch died, we had no contact. So there are these family themes without a question like you've described. It's also origin. You know what I mean? Like we don't really know where we come from on that side. Yeah. To, to be yeah, able to sort of sit down and relate and even to feel that interconnection that is that you can't really put your fingers on. I mean, when I sat down with my dad and across, looking at him across from the table, it was crazy to see myself and to almost hear my voice. And he got emotional because he saw himself in me and it was really gnarly. And we have we don't uh-huh. have we've never had that with the Hudson side of the family to really feel that side of us. See, but that's an, the thing I would say about that, too, that there's one thing that we forget that when people talk about estrangement is that really the family, no matter what you hear in the media and the press about the death of the American family or how we're in a post-family area, for most people, these are the most stable relationships that they ever experienced throughout their entire life course. One line of research, for example, is when people look at changes in social networks, like so you do a survey, like who are your closest associates, and then you do it again 10 years later. Everybody changes except for your family, your spouse, your best friends, but the ones who are still usually there are, if you have adult children, they're still there. If you have living parents, they're still there. We still rely on the family to like, you know, what's Robert's Frost line? When you go there, they have to take you in. And that's why people feel unmoored when it goes away. It may not be conscious sadness, but it's just not that sense that, Here's this latent, you know, in sociology, we can use a sociology term, we talk about social capital. You know, the same way you have economic capital, you have social capital, this reservoir of people that if you needed it, they would be there for you, even if you don't talk to them that much. And that's what estrangement really severs. Um, And that, I think, is why... um, you know, like without preaching, it's good to explore these connections. It's not just help, but these rich family stories. And, you know, like for your kids, um, where they came from, if I can, one of the best things my interviewee said to me that really stuck with me uh, is she 
was having a whole lot of problems with her mother. Her mother was really pretty much of a terrible person. Uh, they had been estranged for a long time. So maybe after 25 years, she was having kids and her kids were getting older. And she said, you know, every person has basically 150 years of history because you've talked to your grandmother when she's 75 and she talked to her grandmother. So, you know, like there's an old person right now who's talked to somebody who might've lived somewhat after the civil war. She said, you don't wanna break that connection that sort you know, the, this long history in a family. So, you know, that is an important point I think you're saying, but you've got this vast interesting array of interesting people that even if they aren't used, you'd like somebody to have access to because it, it grounds you in the world. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does oh, because, totally. you, because you're also cutting your own kids off from their, their history in a sense Correct. by not engaging or reconciling. I like talking about Upstart. I think this is a really important thing for a lot of people. We don't learn about money mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. school. And mm -hmm. we create a lot of debt. And we have multiple credit cards, too. And it's hard to keep track of everything. And that's what Upstart does. So mm -hmm. the idea of this is, is this. If you, if you have multiple credit cards and you're tracking multiple balances, due dates, and website logins, it can get nuts. So Upstart makes things very simple with one monthly payment in one place. It consolidates it all into one space in one place. So whether you're paying off credit cards or, or, or consolidating high interest rates or, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Boom. One and done, baby. It's just, it's a fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt. And it's all mm -hmm. online. So it it finds you smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. You take a five-minute online rate check. You can see your rate up front for loans uh, from $1,000 to $50,000. Mm -hmm. You can get approved the same day and receive funds as fast as one business day. So if debt is taking over your life, Get yourself some upstart. Make a fresh start. This is a, a great way to kind of take that pressure off, I think. Um, so find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash sibling. That's upstart.com slash sibling. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Kate and Oliver Hudson sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash sibling. You know, the one thing that we know about families, and you, do both of you have more than one kid? I can't remember. Three. We both have three. Yeah. So that, you know, the one thing which research shows us, by the way, is that two kids growing up in the same family are no more similar to one another in personality and other characteristics than our two randomly selected kids. Mm -hmm. It's like, even though so you probably noticed it, like there are these huge within family differences. So even though they share half their genes, they're like really different. Uh, you know, they sort of um, create their own environments. And that's why I think it's important to send the message on this topic that 
you know, don't stand in the way, I think, for people of a sibling whose reconciliation attempts are going on. I mean, yeah, the, their memories may be very different, their sense of who the parent is, their level of forgiveness, you know. Um, and it may have to be a little bit of a, my present company excluded, um, but, but it might have to be a bit of a demilitarized zone among siblings. You know, this can be a tough thing. And one of the things that a lot of the people who reconciled found is that some kind of professional counseling, if you're in this contemplation stage of do I really want to do this, both, both some kind of formal counseling, not that the other person's there, but just understanding why do I want this? Is it realistic? If I make an overture, will I be rejected? If I'm not rejected and the relationship sucks, you know, how will I respond to it? So I think that kind of preparation and also bringing in your other supporters. So I had a bunch of people who were ready to make that contact with a long estranged sibling or parent and they um, engaged their spouse. So there was, uh, um, there were some folks, I think of one in particular where she was getting, you know, each time she would talk to her mother as they were reconciling, her partner would be in the room and he could sense when it was going beyond what she was going to be able to handle. So um, we're bringing in your allies. Interesting. Right. He'd be like, honey, um, I think we should make another you know. pot of coffee. <laughs> should I, should you go make another All pot right. of coffee? Yep, I should. Yeah, yep. exactly. Or he's like, oh, oh you my know. hemorrhoids, honey, you're acting up. <laughs> no, I, because it is, you know, the one thing, I don't know if you've experienced this yet. You know, I get accused and there have been some, you know, call-ins to shows I've been on about like, well, you know, why do I sort of promote this reconciliation idea? And I'm really not. It's just what emerged from the research. But I'd say one of the most interesting things I learned is that people describe the process of reconciliation, even if it didn't work out. So even if they tried and it didn't work out, as this really uh, sort of enormous engine for personal growth, that it was kind of like a challenge or a discipline. Like, it was the hardest thing that some of them had ever did, the way you're describing it right now. It's kind of like that. And being, I had a surprising number of people to say, I mean, really with my parents, getting back into some relationship with them. If I can do that, I can do anything. So there was this sense of like, of a major life challenge overcome, mm -hmm. even if imperfect, that made them feel like really good about themselves and mm -hmm. their other relationships. So, and, and that was even in cases where, you know, they gave the person one more chance, uh, they tried. That's actually, if I can continue to juggernaut on for one more minute, one of the things that you might try, and almost everybody who successfully reconciled did, um, but they would often offer one last chance. And you might say, people would say to me, oh, no, I've done it again and again. But they would offer one last chance with very specific terms. Like, look, if you went back in, here's what has to happen. And there's one more chance. So you can't criticize my husband. You can't tell me how to raise my kids. I don't want to hear your political beliefs. You know, um, we'll get together three times a year. They laid out very clear terms for what it was going to be like. And then they ended it if it didn't work. Um, and they protected themselves by those really clear boundaries. Um, um, and that was really helpful because otherwise, the way you've been describing it, things get all mushy. You know, like so one thing could be nobody here is talking to the media about this during the period of time that we're trying to make this work. I mean, that's our restriction. 
right. you know, or, mm -hmm. or like whatever it would be, some mutually agreed upon, this can't happen if we're going to try this. Um, and that worked for a bunch of people. I mean, um, but nothing works for everybody, but that was a pretty good strategy. And uncovering the lessons in my life, you know, looking at how to break certain patterns. One of the things that I found was creating boundaries was one of the hardest things for me and how liberating it was when I actually allowed myself to have my own boundaries, right, of how to be treated or what I'm willing to accept from any relationship or any friendship or any love relationship, right? And I think that it it directly does correlate with not having any understanding of boundaries with that parental figure at all. I think know? that's probably very true. Yeah. And I, so when you said that, that kind of rang mm. that, that in itself, just as a practice, I, that would probably, I would assume be a huge step for someone to be able to reconcile with laying out those boundaries. It probably would feel quite empowering for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, people would say, you know, I'm hanging up the phone if X happens or, and often after someone's been estranged, especially from a child, they're pretty willing, they're compromised. So, you know, it can at least be worth an attempt. And then you don't feel so guilty if, you know, if you've offered the person at least a chance. I want to kind of just dabble a little bit onto things that are a little bit darker and harder to reconcile, like any kind of physical abuse or sexual abuse. These are things that, you know, we can sit here and talk about uh, parental disputes that lead to abandonment or insecurities or whatever it is. But when you're dealing with actual abuse, how does one reconcile when they've been violated? You know, it was very interesting because from our from our broad scale surveys, but we found far fewer people for whom overt abuse was the, the actual cause. More generally, negative, harsh parenting, you know, sort of bad parenting was a cause. That there were some, but you know, but actually people who said the reason why I can never see this parent is because they were abusive was certainly there, but was smaller than I had expected. I think in those cases, there were some people who reconciled. Um, I profile one woman in the book who was, whose father was a drug dealer. She had to become an emancipated minor because he was physically abusive. She was um, sexually abused by, his, by some of his drug dealing cohorts. She went through a whole lot of stuff. He changed, he reformed, he'd gotten better, uh, had, had gotten more stable, and she decided that she wanted a relationship with him. But she did an incredible amount of work on herself first, mm -hmm. understanding why she wanted it, understanding, you know, really ascertaining that he was not like a dangerous person anymore. So, and, um, so there are some people who found that it was worthwhile. But that's one where I say, you know, the reconciliation isn't for everybody. Obviously, in any situation, there are people who are better off out of your life. And especially if it's heavily traumatizing, I wouldn't recommend that people reach out to that kind of a parent unless they really do have professional help, gain understanding, have a lot of support. But there are people who definitely want to do it, who've had 
extreme, yeah, extremely adverse childhood experiences, but say, I still want this connection. But can you have reconciliation and it's, and without the other person, meaning with a situation like that, where there is that kind of trauma and it's not safe and there has been no reform from the, you know, the person who has done the violating, can you have that reconciliation for yourself to move forward? Can I admit one weakness of all this work? It, it, it is the one thing I just, in the interest of full disclosure, what my research and the rest of the research liter on, um, literature unfortunately has not a lot of guidance for is people who are stuck in an estrangement and there really is no way out of it. Like, you know, the other person simply refuses, either on one hand, the person really is an awful person, so you can't have contact with them, but they're still psychologically present for you, or the person just is a complete stonewaller. You know, the coping mechanisms for that are pretty much the coping mechanisms for any other loss, you know, to understand it, mourn it as a loss, get through it. I would agree with you, Oliver, though, that there were a number of people who said that cultivating an interior sense of forgiveness, mm -hmm. um, even without the other person, was liberating. I mean, there's a lot of research on forgiveness now that does suggest that that's the case and might be needed nationally as well as in families at this point. But um, yeah, so, but there's not a lot of guidance or uh, you know, help for those folks. But I do think I would agree that this sense of, in, like, I like the way you put it, internally reconciling with someone, being open to forgiveness for them has helped a lot of people. Mm. But it's tough to know when people are stuck in this and there's no willingness or ability to reconcile. But there just are not yet a lot of good solutions. How much are in-laws... And do in-laws become a source oh, of this, of no, I'm never speaking to my mother or father again based on how right. she's treating my husband or vice versa? So you've got the big global reasons for estrangement, like total value and personality differences or these harsh parenting, but there are two really concrete things that cause us an astonishing number of estrangements. One of them is over money and inheritance issues where whole families split apart. But, but uh, what I call in the book, um, um, the problematic in-law is just way more prevalent um, than I had thought that people get torn between their family of origin and family of marriage. And either the partner deliberately isolates the person from the family or the family rejects the partner. Uh, or, you know, their clashes of culture or personality difference. I will say one thing about those. Those situations were more amenable to reconciliation. Uh, you know, either the person got lost the partner, who really was a bad person, and the family was right, and the person gets reintegrated. Or it's one thing where, you know, look, if you're a parent of an adult child, and you don't like your daughter-in-law or son-in-law, you simply aren't going to win that battle. It's not a winnable battle. There, it's not, pe people aren't going to say, oh yes, I'll get divorced so I can be around my mother more. So the parents or people have to adjust to this, you know, um, in-law. But yeah, it's a big one. Uh, it, is a, it is a major precipitant. 
When you said financial, it's one of the things that I've been thinking about. You know, I, the, I mean, the, there's nothing fun about doing your will and doing your estate planning, right? And I, I, I've been doing mine since I was 18, since I got my first paycheck. I've always been on on my will. <laughs> <laughs> and the other day, I was thinking That's about thing it. I know. Who I, are you leaving shit to at 18? I had stuff that was important to me that if I died, who got it? I, well, you've got things in the will. No, no, I'm saying when you're 18, like, what do you like? Like, uh, leave my like white Jeep. Yes. Rambler. No, I had. Well, I had some funds because of because I had been working. No, I know, but who are you leaving that to? In well, your will? I left it to. At that time, it was all of my brothers. And now it no longer belongs to you. <laughs> but one of the things Show, I, I was always like, and this just happened to me recently where I was like thinking about mortality, more of my friends' parents are passing away, and it causes so much friction. And not only that, you can't mourn a parent, and it literally can break up a family. And Oh, it's so true. I don't know why people don't tell everybody ahead of time what the plan is. So here's the problem with wills. Wills cause so many problems uh, because, first of all, you're right. People, I, I found in these studies, people had secret wills. Everybody thought that they were getting everything evenly and the entire business was left to a brother. It just destroyed the family. But the problem with wills, too, is not everything is divisible, right? But like, so you have three or four kids. One is, oh, they leave everything to everybody equally. But what if somebody loves the lake house? The only way it could be divided equally would be to sell it and, and give folks some money. Or people fight about things like this. You know, that grandfather clock brought over from Germany or the, or the chip Thanksgiving platter that served every family's Thanksgiving turkey. Those can't be divided. So I totally agree with you. And there are programs that can help people to think this out really talking with your survivors and heirs as to what they're going to get, who's going to get what. It's astonishing how long-lasting these fights over wills and inheritance are. And it's not just its not just with already negative relationships. It's actually with relationships that were pretty good. It's so psychologically, you know, you're, you're grieving already, and then these things become who mom loved more, you know, it's insane. Yeah. And it also, I mean, I think that's where it's sort of revealed, which is like you, you have all of these relationships, you kind of in the back of your head, you're like, you, you know, it's the family dynamic that is, could be at some point, you know, going to blow up at any second, but then all of a sudden one parent passes away, you read the will and it like validates everything that one person would have felt. And then it could tear, you know, a family apart. I, I, I felt like, I feel like that is a, a very interesting thing for people to get comfortable doing is talking about saying to your kids, Hey guys, I know this is weird, but let's go around the house and if I died tomorrow, what do you really want? Yeah. <laughs> Let's fight about it now while I'm here. Yeah, I like I, it. You know, being like, all right, guys, yeah. we're, we're all we're all gonna be dead. Uh, pick what you like. Well, you know who's the, 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 the folks you'll find who are really resistant to that discussion are your kids. I mean, yeah. you know, we've tried it because we have adult children, and no, nah, no, you know, yeah. they don't want to hear about it. But but it makes an older parent feel more secure. Totally. I would no. think so. 
Mm-hmm. So the one thing people can really do in, 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 um, in both, especially in the money situation, I had many people who were estranged as a result of that. I said, really, we should have brought in a mediator. Yeah. I mean, which is something you can, you know, people uh, like, again, it's a little bit of the shame. They don't want to do it. But many people said, you know, this would have been prevented, this 10-year estrangement, um, fighting over the family business if we'd brought in an objective third party. I mean, in both, you know, I think the one thing, like, and I argue this in the book, it's based on some psychological research, that if it's around an in-law, if it's around inheritance, the best thing to do is to really sit and think up, do the imaginary exercise. What would an independent third party say about this situation who had everybody's interests in mind? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the family can even begin to discuss it that way of like, oh, you know, okay, what, because again, we talked about the power of our own narratives. Also writing yeah. from Don't the other Don't leave Oliver in control of any money. That's what, what a third mean? party would yeah. say. <laughs> Don't let Oliver be the one making any money decisions. Why not? Vegas, you go to Vegas and you put it on black. You, you double I, it up. Exactly, Ollie's like, I look, there's this really I, great I, I, investment. Double it up. I, yeah, no, but I, I think that's really right. You know, the people make these things. Now, that's true. I, uh, see, um, for me, it would be blackjack. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, no, I, I feel like I could double my retirement income in my <laughs> don't let him don't let him get in there, Carl. No. Don't let him <laughs> convince you. Carl, do it. <laughs> I, I'll do I'm doing it. OK, so, well, you guys it's so great. Now, so your your relationship seems really terrific, you know, eh, well, speaking we're, of we're non-estrangement. No. Yeah, it's been good. But it's interesting, though, because. There's no estrangement, but there was a period of time where we were not connecting or talking much at all well, just we because our of our, our lives were just doing different things, you know, yeah. but there was no resentment. There was no estrangement. It just it just was not connected. Well, that's a piece of estrangement to this drifting apart, because that is a pattern, at least in our culture, that, you know, you're close to your siblings as you're growing up. Then you have what could be referred to as intimacy at a distance. And then people kind of come back together first when they themselves have kids, but then when parents get sick. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I do feel that people um, don't realize that you have to do some maintenance on these sibling relationships often, or they can easily go by the wayside as people get Great busy. Great point. And as I've had yeah. many older people tell me in my studies, nobody really knows you as well as your sister, like, yeah. and you're going to, um, or your brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to want them around later on in life so you know you know i think that's the estrangement thing i i say in the book that um i wish people in their family lives had what was here in central new york you know we had the iroquois nation which had the seventh generation principle like act like what you're going to do now is consider how it will affect seven generations hence people make these hot-headed decisions in families and don't think gee, would I like to have these people around 30 years from now? Or would I like my kids to know their cousins mm-hmm. or to know their grandparents or, you know, to have my kids have an uncle or an aunt? So I, that's that's something I might leave listeners with, you know, is to think about what, to think about like long-term consequences of these things you're doing. Yeah. There's one thing that we didn't mention that maybe would be worthwhile if you feel like it. I've been, well, I've been, you know, because I work in this area, it's been impossible to avoid 
endlessly people, you know, describing to me the political rifts in their own families. Oh, and, yes. And I would have prior, I mean, I sort of have a pre and a post. I mean, prior to the most recent events, I had pretty clear advice that but what a lot of people find works is creating kind of a political demilitarized zone. Uh, operating on a simple principle. Can I possibly change this person's mind? If there's no possibility of changing the person's mind, then simply avoid it. I mean, you know, talk about what you're binge watching. And it takes some discipline, but people can be very firm. Like, you know, if we start to talk about the election, I won't stay. Uh, And it's really worked for a lot of people. If they're, you know, just this notion, there's some things that you just can't talk about, and this is one of them, and people still want to love their families. One thing we know like about human beings and all of our relationships, opposites don't, opposites may attract, but they don't make lasting relationships. So we tend to like people who are pretty much like ourselves, and especially in terms of core values, and that operates in families. Mm -hmm. So that you can be friends with somebody who doesn't share your values, but it's effortful. You know, it, it takes planning and effort and reminding yourselves that, you know, you love this person as a kid or whatever. It's challenging, but, you know, I haven't found any recommendable strategy in families, uh, you know, other than, you know, avoidance, if it's at all possible. Before we head out, I do want to end... On a speed round. Who's your celebrity crush? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to end with one... um, Like what would be, and I know this is so hard because there's a lot, but to all of our listeners, we have a lot of listeners who, you know, I mean, they write in all the time. They talk about their connections with their family, whether they're positive ones, their siblings or, you know, challenging ones. What would be the one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners about um, their, you know, family or if anybody's, you know, in, in the situation of trying to reconcile? I would encourage people um, in the following situation to think carefully. If you're estranged from someone after years or decades and that person wants back in, and it's not a dangerous or damaging situation, if someone is asking for one last chance, I would give it to them. And if someone offers you another chance, I would take it. I think in general for people, it helps them to have a certain kind of family connection, no matter how tenuous. It helps make them feel like their life is well lived and like they are a complete person. So it may not work out, but I would argue for almost anyone, if you're in an estrangement, ponder giving it a chance under protected uh, conditions, understanding your boundaries, et cetera. You know, I've talked to hundreds of people who didn't regret that choice, even if it didn't work out. And I just think, look, I mean, our world is filled with divisions and difficulties politically and socially. The one place in which we have some control is in our families. Um, And why not take that opportunity if you possibly can? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Carl. Carl, your book is called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Thank you so much for coming on and talking still, to us. I still this didn't, is so great. Still didn't get your first celebrity crush. <laughs> there we are. My first celebrity first crush. First celebrity crush. It might be Marianne. 
I mean, that, that would be a possibility. Would I think that might have been one of the uh, earliest ones. And then when I got old enough to really know, it was totally Sophia Loren. Oh, yeah. Oh, this has been really amazing. I loved it. Thank you so much. Yes. I feel like I've known you for a long time. I know. You know? I, know. I just really admire how you thought about it, considered it, uh, you know, and are working through it. It's really great. Awesome. Thank kind you. of models for my readers. Yes. Good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, folks. Thank you, Carl. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark. If you want to show us some love, rate the show and leave us a review. This show is powered by Simplecast. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You looking for some amazing TV to stream? Well, indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu that you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are streaming on Hulu. Then you can move on to Modern Family, Shit's Creek, and my wife and kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits. Streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.